is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Maybe your company has talked about making people work from home permanently. Might be a good idea now. New research shows work from home lifted overall productivity by 5% during the pandemic. People can apparently get a lot done working in sweatpants, a t-shirt, maybe you just stay in your PJs. Also coming up, California was once the country's COVID hotspot, right here in L.A. even. But now it's the total opposite. Early results from a COVID vaccine trial show promise when it comes to vaccinating pregnant women. Vaccines not only helping people, but airlines as well. But let's start with working from home. Stephen Davis, professor of international business at the University of Chicago Booth School, also co-author of the Work From Home Productivity Study. Rob Archer and I asked why more people are more productive working from their house. I don't know if there's much to the sweatpants effect. There may be something there, but seriously, our research says that uh, it's basically because people spend a lot less time commuting and that frees them up to do other things, uh, including devote some of that time to work. Were you surprised at all? Because, you know, it's easy to find parents who go, "Okay, I am at home. There's a lot of distractions. And then there's my children who have been learning online. I've got to watch them. I got to make sure they're in their Zoom calls. And then there's people coming to the door because I got to get the delivery. It's a whole bunch of stuff. And then, you know, maybe you can just turn on the TV, too, and then get distracted for a little bit watching that. So did you see this coming or was it a bit of a surprise to you? You know, it was a bit of a surprise, but um, I do think these uh, stories about the downsides of working from home, which which are real for many people, uh, were a bit exaggerated. Uh, that's what our that's what our evidence says. So we, we found that you know most people um, are at least as productive, and a good number are more productive when working from home. So these distractions you talked about at home, well, there, there's lots of distractions in the office too. People walking by your cubicle, making noises, uh, endless meetings. Uh, uh, water cooler gossip and so on. So there's distractions on both sides. And I think the the more subtle picture is that some activities are actually well done at home where you can maybe isolate yourself for a period of time. Other activities really call for group interactions that are perhaps better done at the office. You know, I've got some personal experience with this. A few years ago, I worked for a company as we started doing more stuff online, it became apparent that I didn't need to drive 45 minutes each way to go into the office. So they let me work from home. And I discovered that I was getting so much more done, uh, not just from having to drive, but also because, you know, I'd get up at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning and immediately sit down at my desk at home and start working because it just felt natural to do so. In your study, when you find out that more people are productive at home, is it because they start work earlier and then discounting any of the distractions like stopping to watch TV, people work earlier and work later at home because it's more comfortable? You know, we do find that they devote maybe a third of their time savings from commuting to extra work on their on their 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 paid job. Um, so that is a big that is a big deal. Um, but in terms of you know when you think about the overall benefits of working from home, I think the larger point is just that forty five minute commute each way. Now that was a big chunk of your day that you mentioned. If you take that off the table, well, you're a little bit more refreshed when you work. You can maybe spend a little bit more time working, but you can also have more time for leisure, time to uh, chat with your spouse and kids and so on. Uh, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot to be gained if we can uh, reduce the amount of time we spend uh, commuting. Do you think some of this sticks? Do people want it to stick? I was talking to somebody this weekend who said, yeah, I'm itching to go back in, but I'm wanting to go back in three days a week. Yeah, well, that, that, uh, that, that's exactly the modal response we see in our survey. Um, most people don't want to work from home five days a week, but there's a, 
there's a, a striking um, degree of uh, prevalence across different demographic groups, high and low income workers and so on, in the desire to spend uh, basically two or three days a week working at home. Um, on the employer side, there's a, there's a little bit more reluctance. What, what we tend to see is, is for uh, professional workers, high income workers, employer plans for them to work from home are pretty well aligned with their desires. But as we move down the uh, income spectrum, um, we still see lots of desire to work from home, but a, a more reluctance on the part of employers to let people work from home. Stephen Davis, professor of international business, University of Chicago Booth School, co-author of the Work From Home Productivity Study. California had a bad winter, dark winter when it came to COVID. Hospitals were crowded on the brink of overflowing. Cases and deaths climbed to highs not seen anywhere in the country at the time. Fast forward, though, to now lowest infection rates in the mainland, the 48 contiguous states. So what happened? Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health, Rob and I asked him what California got right. We got lucky. We did a lot of things right. We did right with planning. We did uh, good things regarding masking and social distancing in California. And then the vaccine administration has gone very well after a little bit of a rocky start, but has gone very well in California. Well, let me run this one by you then. What if we didn't do so well? What if we did okay, but so many people got it here during the surge that now it's translated to a lot of immunity that's out there, and that's why things are looking good, plus the vaccines. Yeah, I think that people being immune from previous infection is part of limiting transmission, but I think that has taken place at a greater proportion in in other states than in California. So we know, for example, in in New York State that there's a higher higher proportion who were previously infected there than in California. Um, But California has done a very good job in terms of vaccine administration. The uh, state does have a contingent of people who are called uh, anti-vaxxers or against vaccination. And then we have a contingent of people who believe in conspiracy theories about this, uh, these vaccines. Uh, what happens when we run into that wall? Is that going to is that going to slow us down, affect us uh, in a bad way? Yeah, so that's kind of the final frontier. So we knew when these vaccines came out that demand was far, far more than the supply that's available. And now the supply is catching up with the demand. What we need is we need to make sure as many people as possible are immune to limit community transmission so that we can go back doing the activities that we want to, going to places of worship together, um, entertainment, sports, and mass gatherings again. Um, But we need a higher proportion of people who are immune, either from previous infection or vaccination. And that's got to be up to between somewhere between 70 and 85 percent. So these these last people who are hesitant or anti-vaccine, that's going to be a a challenge. I think the people who are hesitant might have been waiting for more experience. And we have robust experience with more than 26 million doses administered in California. So hopefully that'll be reassuring to a lot of people. Well, that being said, do we need to get some of these into doctor's offices, you know, primary care physicians? Because maybe people who are still hesitant, because they can get an appointment at one of the larger sites, they are to be had. So if you know your doctor and you trust your doctor, is that the person who's going to get you to get this shot? 
Absolutely. I think that is very, that's very important. And that's one of the um, challenges that we've had because some of these vaccines have more stringent storage requirements. They're not amenable to administration and doctor's offices. One of the advantages of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is it, it, it's really well suited for administration and doctor's offices, but that's of course on pause right now. But people do believe their doctors, they go to their individual doctors for individual advice so they can play a, a huge role in in that last portion of the population. All right, so we're uh, we're doing some things right. Uh, Some things have gone well for us. What could we do better? You know, I think what's happening now is is when we're having uh, open, uh, the vaccines open for all ages is, makes things just so much simpler. It makes it simpler for those administering vaccines. It makes it simpler for the general population and instead of trying to understand these sometimes complicated tiers. I think in California, we've had clear and consistent messaging on social distancing and masking. I think one of the confusing things to a lot of people is the color-coded tiers that we've been dealing with. And so eventually, I think it'll be great if we can if we can move past that by having enough immunity that we don't have those color coded tiers. And then we can have more consistent messaging about what's allowed and what's not allowed. Out of curiosity, before we let you go, we've heard a couple of times on this show, people say, you know, there's other states having a real tough time with the UK variant. And that's the, the dominant strain you know, nationwide. But we had our own. We had this California variant before we even knew it existed. It outcrowded the other one. That's the one we got. Do you, do you subscribe to that idea? You know, that doesn't entirely make sense to me. If a virus is more fit, if it's more transmissible, then eventually it's going to be the predominant strain that's circulating. So I know that the UK variant now is the predominant strain in Michigan, and that's why they're having a tough time there. It's about 50% more transmissible than previous strains. The California strain is about 20% more transmissible. So we're in a better situation than Michigan. But I think it's only a matter of time that if that strain, the UK strain, is more transmissible, it's going to end up here, and it's going to be the predominant strain here also. Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist, UC Davis Health. New clinical trial could lead to more pregnant women getting officially cleared for the COVID vaccine. There are some early positive results in the trial. Involves about 35,000 pregnant women. Rob and I were with Dr. Jennifer Kawas, medical director of the Emory University Reproductive Center, guest researcher for the CDC. We asked about the results. Um, Well, today the New England Journal published an article that was written by a group of CDC authors um, that reported some preliminary findings of mRNA COVID-19 vaccination safety in pregnant persons. So uh, whatever you give to the mother, you give to the fetus, too. Uh, So is this an indication if uh, there are promising results that uh, this is also going to point to promising results to giving the vaccination to extremely young children down to, like, say, you know, two years of age, even uh, babies? Um, I don't know that we can make those conclusions from this study. This study um, is more looking at safety monitoring data that was reported to the CDC Um, in women who received those mRNA vaccines um, and were pregnant at the time. So basically what what they're saying is the benefits do outweigh whatever risks there are, because your risks of getting COVID while you're pregnant, that could lead to a lot of of adverse outcomes for for both mom and baby. Yeah, that's um, that is something for which we do have a lot of data. There is a fair amount of evidence that pregnant persons that have COVID-19 are at increased risk of severe illness. Um, like ICU admission and honestly even death compared to non-pregnant women of the same ages that get COVID-19. 
Um, so you're exactly right. When we're sort of weighing risks and benefits of whether or not to um, get the COVID-19 vaccine, you know, it's an individual decision, but ultimately it comes down to balancing the known risk of actually getting COVID uh, when you're pregnant compared to the theoretical unproven risk of the vaccines. Are we seeing any differences in which vaccines are safe for pregnant women? Because the Moderna and Pfizer are uh, made in a certain way. Johnson and Johnson a little bit different. Are you seeing differences in the types of vaccines? Yeah, that's another great question. Um, The study that was published today in the New England Journal focused primarily on or actually only on the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines, um, which are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Uh, So the side effect profile of those is what was sort of reported in the New England Journal of Medicine today. Um, As you um, all probably know, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine at the moment is sort of under a pause so that further investigation can be um, performed about the potential association with blood clots. When side effects do occur, is it about the same or is it different for pregnant women? Because there's obviously a lot going on to their body already when that vaccine is introduced. Yeah, um, the study did actually report about the incidence of vaccine reactions in pregnant compared to non-pregnant persons. Um, They found that while the injection site pain was reported a little bit more frequently in pregnant persons, things like headache, myalgia, chills, and fever were actually reported less frequently in pregnant compared to non-pregnant persons who received the vaccine. If the uh, results of this study continue to be promising, uh, how soon until uh, we can uh, let pregnant women get in the line for the vaccines? Well, the good news is that pregnant women can already get in the line for vaccines. Um, ASRM, which is sort of the governing body for um, preconception and fertility and infertility, ACOG, which is the governing body for obstetrics and gynecology, and also the CDC, all state that vaccines should not be withheld from pregnant persons. Um, And in some states, uh, pregnancy actually was a criteria that allowed women um, to be offered the vaccine in one of the earlier groups than others. So pregnant um, individuals are able to get the COVID vaccine now. Dr. Jennifer Kawas, Medical Director, Emory University Reproductive Center, guest researcher for the CDC. Doctor, thanks. Short break and then the airlines flying high. The airlines making a comeback because more people are traveling and flying as they get their vaccines. Joe Schwederman, professor of public services and director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul University, he talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about how more of those seats are filling up. Two big reports today. One, Southwest actually eked out a profit. It took some federal aid to make that happen, but that's really a pretty astounding thing given where we are when the uh, the first quarter began. So they had a small profit. American had a bigger loss, and they're uh, stocked down a bit because of, of that. But that said, you know, the last two weeks have been really encouraging. So it's uh, overall a pretty good report today. And when it comes to them getting people back in the seats, I mean, that's what they need in order to rebound. They got a lot of money from the federal government initially, but there's obviously not more of that coming. Most of that money was for payroll protection, but that some of that did flow the bottom line. I think the big story we're hearing now is pleasure travel for the summer looks really good. Oil prices are up just a bit. Uh, you know, but that that business travel market, American and United both warn that until that business travel comes back, you know, it's going to be hard to move uh, that bottom line in the profit column. Uh, that said, you know, fares are uh, uh, inching up and people are still biting and that's uh, going to lead to a fairly good pleasure revenue picture. Really, uh, we think through summer. 
Yeah, and does that pleasure revenue picture for some of the, the uh, whether you call them legacy airlines or what have you, American United Airlines like that, uh, does that travel, the, the pleasure travel, does that in any way replace the business travel? Because it seems like it's going to be a while before that comes back. Yeah, really the big three uh, legacy carriers, American, Delta, and United, are, are in a tough spot because the whole business model relies on you know, frequent service, smaller planes in some cases, business markets, and that's where the weakness are going to prevail. Southwest is a little less dependent on that. But, you know, surprisingly, some of the smaller carriers we thought really may have a tough time even surviving the pandemic, like Frontier and Spirit, are sitting pretty good now because they're almost wholly dependent on leisure, leisure markets, warm weather destinations, and that's hot right now. Will there be pressure on prices? Yeah, there's a lot of people who want to get back to it, but not as many as usual. And so these airlines, I mean, it's it's really hot competition. It is. And, uh, you know, I've been looking at fares, expecting uh, big-time increases. We haven't really seen that yet. I think people are still uh, uh, used to the low fares, expecting bargains. And even through summer, the fares look pretty attractive. You know, but we're not going to see the, the crazy low fares, the $49 Chicago L.A. fares that we saw a few months ago. Uh, and we're seeing now, you know, the weekend fares are tending to pick up, but mid- midweek there's still some pretty nice bargains out there. Thanks so much, Joe Schwederman. Well, the scammers now reportedly getting involved in the counterfeit vaccine game. Spokesperson for Pfizer tells ABC News counterfeit versions of the company's vaccine have been found in Mexico and in Poland. Source tells ABC a substance inside the vials of fake vaccine was a cosmetic product. In February, health secretary in one state in Mexico warned about clandestine sales of alleged COVID vaccine. He says an investigation found at least 80 or 90 people were getting vaccine for the equivalent of hundreds of dollars per dose. But the substance, they didn't know what it was. It may have been water. It may have been something else. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.